Welcome to this podcast from Central, Jesus at the Heart. More information is available from www.jesusattheheart.org. Wow, so amazing to be with you guys. What incredible things going on here. Carl and Nikki, this is an amazing thing that you're doing here. And the team and all the wonderful people that we've already met here, we're just so excited to be with you and thrilled to be in Edinburgh, in Scotland. Um, I, um, whenever I come to Scotland, I have to make the point. Uh, you know, I know that... The, Particularly at this time of the rugby, there's a lot of kind of um, rivalry going on. And I just want to make the point, I mean, it's one thing to be able to say you're a Scot. But I can't say that totally. But what I can say is I have no English blood in me at all. <laughs> Look at that. <laughs> That's to say, actually... Um, my father was a, actually a, a German Jew, so that, he didn't have any English blood in him. He was British, though. He became British. Uh, my mother came from Pittenweem. So my mother was a Scot. So there you are. I've got more Scottish blood than anything. Well, not I've got half Scottish blood. Um, so anyway, it's thrilling to be here. So my parents were like, that's where my mum my came from, Pittenweem. My dad was, as I say, a German Jew. Uh, but not a practicing Jew. He was a secular Jew. So uh, they were both barristers. In fact, everybody in my family has been, have been barristers as far back as anybody can remember. I practiced as a barrister for 10 years. My sister's a barrister. My mother was a barrister. My father was a barrister. My son has qualified as a barrister. My daughter has just qualified as a barrister. My grandfathers on both sides were barristers. My uncle was a barrister. If we'd had a cat, it would have been a barrister. <laughs> that was my background, but not Christian. There were no, no practicing Christians, as far as I know, in my family, as far back as anybody knows. I don't know of any great-grandfather or great-grandmother who um, went to church. Uh, on my father's side... I knew nothing about my father at all, virtually nothing about him, because when I was 14, my mother told me, your father is German and Jewish, and you're never to speak to him about it, and I never did. So I knew absolutely nothing about him. Uh, all I knew was that he'd come over here and um, had fought in the British Army. I've just got his Army war records. He was a lieutenant colonel in the British Army during the war. So he became British um, because he fled from the Nazis just before the war. Uh, but I, recently I got the family tree because the, the museum in Berlin, the Judaica Museum in Berlin, is doing research on my family. Uh, one of my cousins, and uh, I got the family tree. It was so exciting. I discovered that my great-grandfather was Abraham. Not the Abraham, you understand? <laughs> but, uh, and my grandfather was Moses, and he had a brother called Isaac. It's just amazing. See, this is my... This is, uh, but none of them were believers in Jesus, as far as I know. 
as far back on that side or on the other side. So I wasn't brought up as a churchgoer, and um, when I was at my first year at at university, I read the New Testament uh, because a friend of mine, Nikki and Silla Lee, it was, who started the marriage course. They weren't Christians either. We were all at university together. Uh, When we arrived there, none of us were the churchgoers at all, and Nikki and Silla Lee, who started the marriage course, they weren't their married, they were uh, boyfriend and girlfriend, and they came back one evening and said that they had become Christians. And I was horrified, because they were such nice people. Uh, I thought, I've got to do something, I've got to help them, I've got to do some research, and I read the New Testament. And as a result of reading the New Testament, I had an encounter with Jesus Christ, which radically changed my life. And from that moment onwards, I've, I've always had this passion to see people who were like me, people who were brought up outside of the church who didn't know Jesus. I've had a passion to bring them the good news about Jesus because I know the difference. I know what life was like beforehand, and I know that Jesus came that we might have life and have it in all its fullness. And as I walk, as I did through the streets of Edinburgh today, I think I, I long for everybody here to know Jesus Christ. And the question that I want to ask today is, can Scotland be changed? Can a nation be changed? And I want to go back to a passage in the Bible that I often go back to. It's a passage that I'm sure that you will be familiar with. It's a passage in uh, Luke's Gospel where Jesus encounters the first bishop of Rome. We've just had, amazingly, a new bishop of Rome appointed. A great moment. And... uh, it's interesting to go back and to read the encounter of the, the very first bishop of Rome, the apostle Peter. What happened to him when he encountered Jesus? And you know the story in Luke chapter 5 that he, he was a fisherman. He was going about his task and uh, the guys had been out fishing all night and they hadn't caught any fish. And Jesus comes along by the Lake of Galilee and he sees that they've got their boats up on shore and they are cleaning their nets, which is a good thing for fishermen to do. But on this occasion, they haven't caught any fish. And what happens in Luke chapter 5 is this. He says, Jesus says to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. So Jesus says to Peter, look, I want you to go out and catch fish. And we know that this is a a parable, an acted parable. Because at the end he says, I want you to catch men and women. In other words, this 
what I'm showing you here is a visual aid of what can happen. So he says to Peter, put it out into deep waters and let down the nets for a catch. Simon, that's Simon Peter, answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and we haven't caught anything. He says, what's the point? It's like so much of the church today, isn't it? What's the point? No one's going to be interested. We've worked hard all night. We've tried. We tried fishing. There weren't any fish there. None of the fish wanted to jump into our nets. And I don't know this, I'm sort of reading this into the passage because it doesn't actually say this. But I suspect there was a long pause at this moment. Because Jesus was looking at Peter and Peter was looking at Jesus. I don't know what was in Peter's mind, but Peter didn't know Jesus at that stage. He probably knew enough to know that he was a local carpenter. And here was the local carpenter telling him how to catch fish. And he was probably thinking, you don't know what you're talking about. If there were, we're the fishermen. If there were any fish out there, we'd have caught them. But he seems to kind of recognize something in Jesus as he looks at him. And he says, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will catch men and women, as the inclusive version says. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Peter caught a big vision that day of what God could do with his life. And three years later, he preached a sermon where 3,000 people were converted. 2,000 years later, as a result of that, there are now over 2 billion Christians in the world today. And what I want to look at this morning is what lessons can we learn from this incident about what God could do with your life and my life. What God could do with this church. What God could do in Scotland. Here's the first thing. The potential is vast. In the Sea of Galilee, there were shoals of fish that covered the lake for as much as an acre. There were just acres of fish. But they hadn't caught any. Someone said the real miracle of this story is that they hadn't caught any fish. There were so many out there. And actually, there are so many people out there who are hungry, spiritually hungry. 
I don't think I've ever known a time in my life when there is such a spiritual hunger. Pippa was saying, we, back in 1984 it was, I think, we did a mission. It was called Step Forward. We had a week of mission. And during that mission, this was in our church, John Collins came and preached for a week. And one person, Caroline, became a Christian. We thought this was the most amazing thing. Someone had become a Christian. We put her up. She gave her testimony. She gave her testimony. Every time we needed somebody to give a testimony, Caroline was produced. Someone had become a Christian. Now every Alpha course, September, Alpha course, arrives there. There are a thousand people on the course, including the team. People are queuing up all the way around the church, halfway down the drive, wanting to know about Jesus. These are people outside of the church. We have hundreds of testimonies. Our congregation get bored. They think, oh, more Alpha testimonies. More people coming to know Jesus. But you should never get bored. They don't really get bored, but there's sometimes a temptation. There's just so many of them. And there's such a spiritual hunger out there. I love to read the questionnaires. Here's one. This is one from nine months ago. This is a guy called Sam. This is what he wrote on his questionnaire. This guy was, is 23 years of age, complete atheist. He was a follower of Richard Dawkins. And he, one day he was looking on the internet and he heard, he saw something about the Alpha Course. And he thought, well, I like a good argument. I'll turn up and have a good argument. And this is what he wrote on his question. How would you describe yourself before the course? Atheist. How would you describe yourself now? Christian. Describe your experience. He wrote this. I found the draw of Jesus irresistible and have gone from someone with no faith to someone with an immense hope. To live in a state of non-truth, to living in a state of truth, is to me the difference between being bound and complete freedom. This guy is now a full-time member of our staff. This is nine months later. He was baptized. Amazing time when he was baptized. And then later joined the staff. And now he is telling other people, Jesus is alive. It's just one of the fish. And Jesus says, look, there are so many of them out there. that We are surrounded by people who don't know Jesus, but who are spiritually hungry. They know there's something, like me. There's a kind of spiritual void that was there. I can testify to that fact. There was an emptiness. Anyone who doesn't know Jesus, there will be an empty. We know that there will be this spiritual void because we're made for a relationship with God. Until we find that relationship with God, we will never fill that spiritual hunger. So that's the first thing. Uh, The potential is vast. Second thing from this passage 
is nothing is impossible with Jesus. Jesus made what seemed impossible possible. I don't know what's going on in your life right now, but maybe you're facing a situation which you think it's, it's just impossible. If you knew what I was facing, you, you're thinking, you'd know, there's nothing I can do. Maybe you're facing a situation with your health. Maybe you're facing a situation with your job or your relationships or lack of relationship or your marriage or with a child and you're thinking Mm-mm. it's impossible God can't sort that one out but what we see in this passage is Jesus makes what seems impossible possible Maybe you're looking around and you're hearing the vision. You know what amazing thing that, that Carl and Nikki have this amazing vision for Scotland. I, I, I travel a bit and it's interesting meeting people. Some, most people have a vision for their own life, a little bit of a vision for their own life. They have a vision for their family. Some people have a vision for their village. Some people have a village for their area of a city. Some people have a vision for the whole city. They're more rare. But some people say, I really have a vision for London. I really have a vision for Edinburgh. That's more rare. But there are not that many people who have a vision for the whole nation. And Carl and Nikki have a vision for the whole nation. And you're very privileged, I think, They're privileged to have you and you're privileged to have them because that's a vision which is an amazing vision. And God has put that vision in their hearts. They didn't just wake up one day with that vision. That is a God-given vision. And he's put them in this church with you guys. And that means it's a shared vision. And as you look around Scotland, you might think, Scotland? Re-evangelized, nation transformed, Jesus honored again, Jesus glorified, all the problems we're facing at the moment, all the issues in the church, all the struggles. Mm -mm. I don't think that's possible. But Jesus makes what seems impossible, possible. He says to Peter, who says, look Lord, it's impossible. We worked hard all night, we haven't caught anything. Jesus, Jesus says, well, he, he says, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. He says, okay, if that's what you're saying, Jesus, I'll have a go. Visions require risk. You have to step out in faith. Vision is so important. Action without vision, well, vision without action is just a dream. Action without vision is a nightmare. But vision and action combined can change the world. And Peter acted. He let down the nets. 
And when they'd done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. And that's what can happen. That's what can happen in Scotland. Scotland can be transformed. The hardest cases can be transformed. That's what's so exciting about Jesus. I love Jesus. He's so amazing. I love the way he changes people's lives. And Jesus chooses the hard cases. It's so interesting, isn't it, when you read about Jesus. He he wasn't so interested in the kind of very self-righteous people who who sort of, I don't know, thought quite a lot of themselves. He went for the for the, heart, the people whose society had ridden off. I find it so exciting to see what's happening in the prisons right now. Alpha started in the prisons in 1994 with two guys, a father and son. And they were awaiting trial for the largest importation of cannabis ever into the UK, four and a half tons. And while they were in prison, someone went down there. They they started the first Alpha course. They encountered Jesus. And these two guys were right at the top of the criminal tree. They're known as faces. I don't know whether you have that expression here. Faces are the people who are like the faces on the poster. They're the top criminals. And the other criminals look up to them. The, the, The prisons are very hierarchical. So when these two started saying to the other prisoners, you're doing Alpha, they did Alpha. <laughs> and Alpha spread from prison to prison. It's now in 85% of the prisons in the UK. And 40,000 men and women have come to faith in Jesus Christ on the Alpha courses around, around the, the UK. These are people who are written off by society. We started this program, Caring for Ex-Offenders, meeting at the prison gates, helping them to find a job, helping them to be integrated into the Christian community. And Paul Cowley, who started all that, has started a whole lot of other ministries related to that. Overcoming addiction, overcoming debt, overcoming depression, homeless projects. Because all these are connected. And one of the ones he started recently is a warehouse for people who are in long-term unemployment. Because that's another thing that leads into crime. And one of the guys who was long-term unemployed because of disability... Many years ago, he crushed his spine and uh, he crushed the vertebrae, so they're compressed like that, so he was unable to work. And so he, he started to work as a volunteer. They, they offered him a volunteer position in, in the warehouse. And while he was in the warehouse, somebody said, would you like to come on Alpha? And he's on this Alpha course. And last week, what is it? Sunday. Wednesday. This was last Wednesday. Last Wednesday, this is four days ago, I met him. And he told me his story. And I said, will you come up? Because it was, it was an evening when we were talking about healing. And I interviewed him during the notices on Alpha on Wednesday, last Wednesday. And he, he came up to the microphone and I said, tell me a little bit about your life. I didn't really know very much about his life. He said, well, I've been in prison ten times. I nearly got life imprisonment one time. 
uh, he said, but I had this injury. I went off to the, I had my, my spine was crushed. He said, I've been on painkillers. He take, every day he takes two very, very strong painkillers. And he has to go and lie down for four hours after each one of them because they're so strong. And he said, the next uh, thing that the doctors are going to move him on to is morphine. And he said he came on the Alpha Weekend, which was two and a half week, weeks ago. During the Saturday evening of the weekend, he said, when you prayed that prayer, he said, I can't read or write. I'm dyslexic and I can't read or write. But he said, I, I watched, I listened to you pray that prayer, giving, your, giving my life to Jesus. He said, I prayed it. He repented of his sins he thanked Jesus for dying for him and he asked him to fill him with the Holy Spirit. And as he was walking into supper, a guy came up and just said, I want to pray for you. And he laid his hands on his shoulder and the pain just went. All the pain that had been in his body just went. Years and years of pain left his body at that moment. And he said, oh, he's just, his face was just absolutely alive. Jesus had transformed him. He'd healed him. He said, he said, I, he said I could lift, now I can lift my grandchildren. He said, I've been lifting washing machines. He shut that drawer with all his pills in. Hasn't opened it since. Hasn't taken a single pill. Jesus has made what seemed impossible, possible. And what Jesus does for an individual, he can do for a nation. Third, from this passage, it cannot be done alone, but only in partnership. They signaled to their partners in the other boats to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Everything that's worthwhile, I think, today is happening in partnership. And this is a wonderful visual aid. They signaled to their partners. They said, come and help. Let's do this together. So let, let's think about Scotland. How is Scotland to be re-evangelized? It's not going to be re-evangelized by any one denomination, is it? I think that's what we used to think. Oh, the Anglicans can do it. Oh, the Catholics can do it. Oh, the Methodists can do it. Oh, the Free Church can do it. Oh, the Baptists can do it. But I think we're all recognizing now it's not going to happen like that. It can only be done in partnership, working together. And you know, there's amazing partnership in this church, all of you working together. You can see that. You work amazingly together in partnership with one another. Mother Teresa said, I can do what you cannot do. You can do what I cannot do. Together, we can do great things. And that's true as a church. All churches are partnerships, everyone working together.
But it's also true in terms of re-evangelizing a nation. It's not going to be done alone, but only in partnership. And I think this building is an amazing visual aid, an amazing prophetic sign, because this is a Methodist building. And I think you're Baptist, aren't you? Or I don't know whether even Carl knows what he is. <laughs> and that's good, that's healthy. Because actually, does it really matter whether we're Baptist, Methodist, Anglicans? We know Jesus. That's, it's about Jesus. It's not about what denomination you are. I think we should drop all the labels. If we're going to see any progress, we need to drop the labels. And the only label we want is the label of Jesus. We're Christians. And isn't this a great partnership? A Methodist building with a Baptist congregation coming together and they produce something new. It's like you know, when babies are born, a mother and a father come together, they produce a new baby. The baby is not the father, it's not the mother. It looks a bit like both, but it's new, it's different. And that's what partnerships create. They create something new and different. It's not a clone. Children are not clones of their parents. They just look a bit like both of them. All of our church plants are like that. St. Peter's Brighton that I was telling you about. There's a whole history of St. Peter's Brighton. It's been there for 150, 200 years. That's one parent. We sent a congregation, we're another parent, and we produced a child. The child looks a bit like HGB. It also looks like St. Peter's Brighton. But it's not some, the same as that, and it's not the same as HGB. It's itself, it's something new. It, every congregation is like every, this congregation is like every child. It's different. Every human being is different. You're, there's no congregation like this in the whole universe. You are unique. There's no human being like you. You are unique. Every church is different. But partnerships produce life and children. And think what could happen with partnerships. Think if you could send teams out all over Scotland from here to do partnerships with I don't know, other parts of, of the church working together to produce new life, new churches. That's Carl and Nikki's vision. It's an amazing vision. And it's possible, but it can only be done in partnership. Fourth thing from this passage is it is a vision worth going for. When Simon Peter saw this, They'd filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He said, this is his response to seeing what could happen. He says, oh, Lord. That's his first response is, not me. You can't use me. I wonder whether there's someone here today. You're thinking... Not me. I'm a sinful person. God will never use me. We are all sinful people. 
God, the only people God uses are sinful people. He's never used anybody else. Not a single person other than sinful people that God has used. So if you say, I'm a sinful person, that qualifies you. Because that's the only type of people God uses. That's the only people that exist. That's all of us. we, We tend to sort of put people on pedestals and think, Carl and Nikki, I bet they're absolutely perfect. I'm sure they are. I don't know anything wrong with Carl and Nikki at all. But all I know is me. And I know there's plenty wrong with me. And I know my first reaction would be, I'm a sinful person. I, I mean, I, you know, I've been a Christian now nearly 40 years. And sometimes I think I'm not getting any better. Sometimes I think I'm getting worse. I cycle around London. And... Um, when I cycle around London, I never wear... I, I'm an Anglican vicar, by the way, just in case you didn't know. Uh, I'm an Anglican vicar. I could go around in a clerical collar and a black shirt, and some Anglican vicars do. I, I, I very rarely wear an Anglican uh, uh, clerical collar, but certainly never when I'm on my bicycle, because it would slow me up so much. I'd have to stop at every red light, every pedestrian crossing. <laughs> I couldn't go on the pavement... Quite recently, I was biking down Oxford Street, and uh, Oxford Street, loads of people on the pavements, and I, I, I tend to cycle quite a long way away from the pavement because people coming onto the, onto, walk, walking suddenly off the pavement. And I heard this hooting behind me, and it was a, a black cap who was clearly fed up with the fact that I was bi- biking in the middle of the road. And he overtook me very close, and to give me a bit of a fright, and he shouted, you're in the middle of the road, move over. And I don't know what it, something within my spirit, and I don't think it was the Holy Spirit, (laughs) said, right, get him. So I started cycling after him, and I caught him up at the next traffic lights, because the thing is, taxis do have to stop at the traffic lights. So I caught him up at the the traffic lights, and... uh, he said, you are slightly in the, in the middle of the road. You should move over. And I said, what is your number? Because I thought I'm going to report this guy. And they don't like being reported. I said, what is your number? He was furious. He said, my number? And at that moment, the light changed to green and he drove off. I thought, right, I really am going to get him. <laughs> so I started cycling out and I was trying to learn the number, 56618. And I could see he was looking at me through his rear view uh, mirror and he was kind of eyeing me up and I managed to catch up with him and as I caught up with him I heard him say Nicky you should keep to the rules I thought what was that he said Nicky you should keep to the rules next thing he had his alpha manual and he was waving it out of the window at me so I said have you done the alpha course I said, oh, I said, how nice to meet you. <laughs> I, I said, what's your name? He said, my name's Dean. I said, I've just become a Christian on the Alpha course. <laughs> I said, I'm so sorry. <laughs> and then he, the, the, the passenger in the, in the back of the cab was obviously so mystified by what was going on he'd expected a punch up so he turned around and said this guy runs the alpha course it's inspirational it's changed my life 
So as I biked off, I thought I could be a bit more careful. <laughs> but I mean, that's just a trivial example. We, we, all of us feel inadequate. Interestingly, do you know that people, most people within the first five years of becoming Christians don't feel guilty? They feel relieved of their sins. After they've been Christians for about five years, they start feeling guilty all over again. And that's the main reason why people don't volunteer. 70% of the people who don't volunteer is because of guilt. It's not because they don't think they're any good, it's just because they feel guilty. And Peter says, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. I want to encourage you today. If you're sitting here thinking, I can't do this because I feel guilty, we're all in the same boat. Jesus has forgiven us. Don't forget, Jesus has forgiven you. You are forgiven. You are cleansed. And God wants you to do something. Not The devil wants you to feel so guilty that you never volunteer. May I challenge you today, if you're like that, we're all in the same boat. And Jesus calls us. He says, don't be afraid. Don't, don't let guilt hold you back. Don't let your anxieties hold you back. Don't let your, everyone has fears. Everyone has anxieties. Don't let those hold you back. Don't be afraid. From now on, I'm going to use you. You're going to catch men and women. You're going to be involved in this exciting venture of changing people's lives. There's nothing more exciting than seeing people's lives changed. And you can have that privilege. I can have that privilege.